أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وآله الطيبين الطاهرين اللهم صل على محمد وآل محمد As we continue our journey into examining the life and the biography of the Holy Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa alihi there are several important points for us to examine that concern the ancestors of the Prophet and the fathers and the grandfathers, the mothers and the grandmothers of the Holy Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa alihi. There is an area of dispute amongst Muslim scholars in general, but specifically between the Shia scholars and the Sunni scholars or historians about the grandfathers of the Prophet, his fathers and grandfathers, his mother for example. Do they have to be believers in God or no? They were disbelievers. They were not believers, maybe some of them were even idol worshippers. The school of Ahlul Bayt, when it comes to the fathers of the Prophet, is very clear and strict that all of the fathers and grandfathers of the Prophet were faithful individuals who worshipped God and only believed in one God. They were not atheists, they were not polytheists, they were all pure in their belief, in their faith. Whereas the majority of Sunni scholars, they believe the parents of the Prophet died kafir, they died as non-believers and most of the Prophet's grandfathers were not believers. Until today, the majority of Sunni scholars and Sunni schools of thought believe in that. Now, when it comes to the Shia scholars, some scholars like Al-Majlisi, Al-Allam Al-Majlisi was a great scholar who lived about three centuries ago. He says not only were the fathers and the grandfathers of the Prophet believers, but they were also prophets or successors. Prophets or successors. Remember, how many prophets did we have before the last of the prophets? 124,000 prophets. Now not all of these prophets were universal messengers. Some prophets, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent them revelation and they were prophets only for their village, some even only for their circle of friends, some even only for their families, some even for, their, for themselves only. So you had a prophet who had no divine book to give the people, they may not necessarily have preached any particular message, but they were just individuals in society who called onto the path of justice and they were righteous individuals. So Al-Alam Al-Majisi says according to the ahadith that he has researched, the fathers and the grandfathers of the Prophet were all not only believers, but special believers, they were prophets. Many of them received revelation from God. So even Abdul Muttalib, the, the grandfather of the Prophet, he was a prophet, but not a universal prophet. He did receive some sort of divine inspiration or revelation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The majority of Sunni scholars 
disagree with that. However, you do have some Sunni scholars who believe that all the fathers and grandfathers of the Prophet were believers. Let me give you some names. Al-Mas'udi, a prominent Sunni scholar. Ya'qubi, a prominent Sunni scholar. Al-Razi, prominent Sunni scholar. Suyuti, a prominent Sunni scholar. In fact, Al-Suyuti wrote a number of books or booklets to prove that the grandfathers and the fathers of the Prophet were all pure and believers in God. So the Shia school of thought unanimously says the grandfathers of the Prophet all the way to Ibrahim, all the way to Ibrahim because the Prophet is one of the descendants of Ibrahim. Ibrahim is the great grandfather of the Prophet. All of them were believers in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. What is the proof? When we say that the grandfathers of the Prophet were believers in God, they worshipped God, they didn't worship the idols. What is our proof? We have a number of proofs. First of all, we the Shia, we have hadiths. If you open our books of hadith, we have numerous hadiths from the Imams of Ahlul Bayt, peace be upon them, specifically from Al-Imam al-Sadiq that states all the fathers and grandfathers, the ancestors, the direct ancestors of the Prophet were believers in God. Number two, there is a hadith that is found in Sunni books as well. For example, Ar-Razi in his tafsir, he mentions this hadith. You will find this book in As-Seer Al-Halabiyya, which is a book about the biography of the Prophet. You will find this hadith in the book Al-Durr Al-Manthur, which is authored by a Sunni scholar. They mention a hadith from the Prophet in which he says, لَمْ يَزَلْ يَنْقُلُنِيَ اللَّهِ مِنْ أَصْلَابِ الطَّاهِرِينَ إِلَىٰ أَرْحَامِ الْمُطَهَّرَاتِ The Prophet says it was the case that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would continuously move me or transform me from the line or from the loins of the pure ones and the wombs of the pure ones, the mutahharat, hatta akhrajani fi alamikum, until I was born. I came into this worldly existence. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protected me from the impurities of the era of ignorance. In this hadith, the Prophet says, if you look at my ancestry, my, the lineage that came before me, it was pure. Aslab al-Tahirin, arham al-Mutahharat. Now the word sulb in Arabic, you'll find that in the Quran. Sulbi wa taraib. The word sulb in Arabic technically means the pelvis. Technically, right? In English, we also say the loins of someone. Now symbolically it means from the progeny, you know they came from the loins of Adam, what does that mean? From the, from the progeny of Adam The Prophet says when you look at my ancestors, the wombs and the loins, they were all pure. Tahir, pure. Now is it possible that one of the grandfathers of the Prophet was a mushrik, a polytheist? Because the Quran says polytheism is an impurity, it's a najasa. 
The Quran is very clear that polytheism is a type of spiritual uncleanliness. It's a type of spiritual najasa. Therefore, if the Prophet says, ever since the beginning, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would transform me through these pure wombs and loins, that means his grandfathers were believers, because if they were not believers, they were not pure. And he's very clear that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him that ancestry. Yes? So when he says that hadith, he means both his grandfathers and his grandmothers were pure? Yes, yes, the grandfathers, the direct grandfathers and the mothers, yes. Would this be the same for his uncles? No, this does not apply to his uncles, because one of the uncles of the Prophet, as we know Abu Lahab, died as a disbeliever. This is, that's why I said direct grandfathers of the Prophet. So his father, then his father, then his father, then his father. Yes. And the Prophet's own mother, of course. They were pure. The uncles, no. If you go out to the relatives, some of them were disbelievers. But we're talking about those who carried the line of the Prophet. Because see, Islam recognizes the role of genes. You, your grandparents, right, they passed down their genes. So even the genes of the Holy Prophet from Ibrahim until him, they are pure genes. And the genes that he received from his grandparents were from pure believing grandparents. So this is one proof that we can use. Now some argued, some of those Sunni scholars who believe that the parents and the grandparents of the Prophet were not faithful, were not, you know, muahideen, monotheists, believers in God. They said what the Prophet means by this hadith, that I come from pure wombs and pure loins, he, he's talking about the, you know, uh, grandfathers who were legitimate, meaning none of my grandfathers were illegitimate sons. None of them came out of wedlock. That's what he was meaning, that my ancestors are pure in that sense. So they were not believers, however they were legitimate children to their parents. None of them came as a result of adultery for example. But there's no reason for us to specify the meaning of purity here. The Prophet is saying a general statement, the pure wombs and the pure loins. Why should we restrict it to this type of purity only? It applies to other types of purity. So this is proof number one. Proof number two, verses 218 and 219 of Surah Al-Shu'ara. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who sees you when you stand. Allah is Witnessing and watching. وَتَقَلُّبَكَ فِي السَّاجِدِينَ وَتَقَلُّبَكَ فِي السَّاجِدِينَ What does وَتَقَلُّبَكَ فِي السَّاجِدِينَ mean? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sees you when you stand and your movement among those who prostrate. Those who do sujood, 
What does this mean? There's two meanings to this. Those who said that the Prophet's grandfathers were not believers, they say, yeah, the meaning of this verse is that Allah sees you when you're standing and also when you're doing sujood with the sajideen, with those people who pray around you. However, we have a hadith from Ibn Abbas, from Al-Imam Al-Baqir from Al-Imam Al-Sadiq that explains a deeper layer to this verse. This is saying, is that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had decreed that you would be from this progeny of Ibrahim السلام, Allah had you move from the wombs and the loins of those who were sajid, of those who would prostrate to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So sajideen is a reference to his grandparents, to his grandfathers. They were the sajideen, those who prostrated and worshipped God. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had you move through their lineage, through their wombs, through their loins. If you find this idea confusing, let me just say this briefly, that when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created Adam salam, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also created every human being in the form of dhar, in the form of an Adam. Your existence before you were born started with Adam salam. Yes, you still didn't have a soul attached to you physically yet. However, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created that initial seed of your existence. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put all of that in the back of Adam. There's a verse on, on that. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and remember when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala took the covenant from the progeny of Adam when they were in his back or when they were in the backs of their fathers. So this is, there's a lot of discussion as to what that means. However, the seed, the origin of our existence started when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created Adam. And you know, let's say maybe some scientists today could help us by shedding light on genes. Maybe our genes were all implanted in Adam alayhi salam, the father of humans. And therefore, every human being who would be born after him, the origin of his genes were in Adam. Maybe that's a scientific, biologic way uh, to look at it. But what we know from the Quran and the Hadith is that when Allah created Adam السلام, in his back, now is that a symbolic back? Is that the physical back? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put all of humanity there. And then through the different generations, we would move from one back to another back from one generation to another generation. So the hadith says the Prophet would move from one sajid back to another sajid back, meaning faithful. In other words, his grandfathers were sajideen, they worshipped Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this is another proof that the grandparents of the Prophet were muwahid, they were monotheists and they believed in God. Now let me ask you, do you accept, based on your own conscience and fitrah, that the greatest of God's creations, the Holy Prophet, his own father, his own mother, died as non-believers? Would Allah allow that? I'm just asking you. 
But most Muslims today, brothers and sisters, do believe that. That the very parents of the Prophet died mushrik. And we'll look at some of the hadiths that they've mentioned. That not only are they mushrik, but they're in hell as well. Can we accept that? These, this, when we talked in the first course that we have to purify the biography of the Prophet, this is one area that we need to start. That the ancestry of the Prophet, the lineage is pure from Ibrahim until the Prophet, it was pure. And the Prophet came from these ancestors who were pure. Yes, brother. So were, so were all of these basically the same as like his uncle where they were keepers of the Kaaba, that's where they... His grandfathers were the keepers of the Kaaba. And the Sunnis say, yes, they were the keepers of the Kaaba, but they were mushrik. They would prostrate to the idols. They would worship the idols. That's what they would say. Now there's an objection to us, yes. So all schools of thought say that? The, the, the majority, they yes. Have, they have prominent scholars that don't believe that, but in general... Yes, I mentioned some scholars, but the vast, vast majority of Sunni scholars believe that. They believe that the grandfathers of the Prophet, they were not necessarily believers. In fact, many of them died kafir. Some of them say they were Hanif. So the Hanif means they were upright on the religion of Ibrahim and they worshipped God. We say that. Some Sunnis, like the names I mentioned, say that. But the vast majority of Sunnis say no, they were not believers, they were mushrik. Now there's an objection to us from the Sunnis. They say, well, the Quran says that Ibrahim's father was mushrik. The Quran says Ibrahim's father, Azar, initially Ibrahim promised him that if you follow the right path and you worship God and you distance yourself from the idols, I will do istighfar for you, I will do forgiveness. But then when it became clear to him that he was insisting on worshipping the idols, he condemned him, he condemned him in the sense that he distanced himself from him. And the Quran says that he was a mushrik. So see, we have a verse in the Quran that the father of Ibrahim, now the father of Ibrahim is also the grandfather of who? The Prophet, right? Because the Prophet comes from that lineage. The Prophet is a descendant of Ibrahim. So if the father of Ibrahim, according to the Quran, was a mushrik, there you have a great, great grandfather of the Prophet who was mushrik. So they're objecting to us and say, okay, there's proof from the Quran. So why do you make it seem as if, you know, this is so outrageous when the Quran actually speaks about it? What is the answer to that? The answer to that, Azar, as the Quran mentions him, وَإِذْ قَالَ إِبْرَاهِيمُ لِأَبِيهِ Azar. The Quran says when Ibrahim said to his father Azar, Azar was not the biological father of Ibrahim. He was either his uncle according to most historical traditions or some weak traditions say he was his maternal grandfather. So it wasn't his direct grandfather, his maternal grandfather. It was not his direct grandfather. That's fine. If one of your maternal grandfathers, for example, is, you know, um, not a believer, that's not an issue. They don't, all of them have to be believers. But your direct fathers and grandfathers have to be believers. So, historical accounts tell us that Azar was his uncle. He was his stepfather. 
The name of the father of Ibrahim was Taruk, not Azar. His name was Taruk. Now because he died when Ibrahim was young, who took care of him? He grew up in the care of his uncle Azar and that's why the Quran calls him Ab, father, because he took care of him. And in Arabic, the one who takes care of you like your stepfather or your uncle, we call him father. So he was not his father, he was actually his uncle. That's our first rebuttal. Number two, and this is a very strong one, we see that in Surah Ibrahim, verse 42, Ibrahim, when he would have that discussion with his uncle Azar, it was when he was young, when his youth, because he was taking care of him, he was young, let's say a teenager and then in his 20s probably. Surah Ibrahim verse 42 talks about Ibrahim in his old age after he had Ismail and Ishaq. In Surah Ibrahim verse 42 he makes a dua, he makes a prayer. What does that prayer say? See initially he promised his uncle Azar that I'll do istighfar for you, I'll ask God to forgive you. When it became clear to him that he is insisting on his disbelief, Allah told Ibrahim, you cannot do istighfar for him anymore because now he's rejecting the truth. So Ibrahim stopped, according to the Quran, Ibrahim stopped doing istighfar for his uncle Azar. Now at the end of his life, Ibrahim is doing the dua, Oh Allah, Allahumma ghfirli, have forgiveness on me and my biological parents. See when the Quran refers to Azar, it uses the word Ab, father. Father is general. In fact the hadith says your teacher is also your father. Your father-in-law is also your father, symbolically. Ibrahim when he does this dua for his parents, he doesn't say my father, he says walidayya. The word walid in Arabic is only used to refer to your biological father because technically walid means the one who gives birth. Walida is my mother who gave birth to me and my father, the walid is the one who gave birth to me because he's my father. He was the cause of my birth. So Ibrahim does istighfar for his parents. But wait, if Azar was mushrik and he was his father, how did he do istighfar? This tells you that his walid, his biological father was mu'min, was a believer and hence he did istighfar. Because the Quran prohibited Ibrahim from doing istighfar to that other father which is his uncle. So the ancestors of the Prophet, his direct ancestors, they were actually pure individuals who believed in God. Now you will find a hadith in the book of Muslim, Sahih Muslim, until today there is a hadith, a man asked the Prophet where is my father? He had become Muslim, his dad died as a mushrik, as a polytheist and he came to the Prophet, he asked him where is my father? According to Muslim, you know what the Prophet answered? 
the Prophet told him, Inna Abi wa Both our parents, my dad, your dad, they're in hell. They're burning in hell. The Prophet says that according to Sahih Muslim. And this is considered one of the most authentic Sunni books. We have a problem here. Is this how we honor the Prophet? Is this our love and respect for Rasulullah? The greatest messenger of God? What's the hadith number? I can give you the page number because different versions. In the group I can send you the reference. The Prophet tells him, don't worry, my, my dad's also burning in hell, not just your dad. Is that even how a prophet talks? If someone comes and asks about their parents, the prophet, you know, uh, when you say that to someone, you just destroy them, you demoralize them. The prophet didn't have such character. Even if his dad, his dad was in hell, the prophet's not going to say this in front of others and make him feel hurt. In fact, there's a verse in the Qur'an, some of these people came and asked, what happened to our ancestors from the mushrikeen? You know what the Qur'an says? It doesn't give them the answer. Allah says, don't ask these questions that when you'll get the answer, it'll be upsetting. Even God refused to answer. When they asked about their ancestors, the mushrikeen, Allah said, just be quiet, don't ask. So the Prophet is going to tell him, oh my dad's burning in hell just like your dad's burning in hell. This is unacceptable. Unfortunately we have such hadiths in our books. How they found their way into our books, God knows. So this hadith contradicts the proofs that we talked about, that the parents and the grandparents of the Prophet are pure. Number two, this hadith in Muslim, it's narrated by Hamad ibn Salama. From Thabit, from Anas. There's another version of the hadith which is narrated by Mu'ammar, a narrator by the name of Mu'ammar, not Mu'ammar Qaddafi, another Mu'ammar at the time of those early Muslims. Now, according to the version that Mu'ammar narrates, the Prophet does not say, my father and your... It's, he mentions the same story that happened, but he does not mention the statement, my father and your father are in hell. And the scholars of biography, they say that Mu'ammar was more trustworthy than Hamad. He was more trustworthy. Hamad wasn't that trustworthy. So the, the narration of Hamad has an issue. Maybe it was inserted. Mu'ammar was more precise and more trustworthy. He doesn't mention this line. Where did Hamad bring this line from? So it tells you that some forgery happened there when it came to some of these hadiths. No, the second one Mu'ammar is found in other sources, but it's also more authentic. Muslim, he narrates this. Furthermore, the majority of Sunni scholars they believe that those who died in the Fatra, the Fatra is an era in which you did not have a known universal messenger. It's the 500 years between Jesus and the Prophet. We call this the what? The Fatra. Many Sunni scholars believe if someone dies in the Fatra, even if they die as pagans, unbelievers, because there was no apparent messenger, right? God forgave them and they did not go to hell. 
Now these ancestors of the Prophet, when did they die? Before Islam, right? I mean Abdullah, the, fa the, fa the father of the Prophet, he died before Islam. So he died in the Fatra. So according to your beliefs, those who die in that era should not go to hell. Right? Except if someone is a criminal and they committed acts of injustice and they killed people, that's a different issue. None of the grandfathers of the Prophet did that. But just because someone had the wrong belief, according to Sunni scholars, the majority of them, they say they did not go to hell. So how does Muslims say that the father of the Prophet is in hell? Didn't he die in the Fatra? So that's another clue, piece of evidence that this hadith is forged. It's not correct. Now the question, the very important question is, uh, by the way, interestingly, just to finish that, some said, some scholars, Sunni scholars found this, okay, this is too much. The Prophet saying, my own dad is in hell. So they said, when he said, Abi, my dad, he meant his uncle Abu Talib. His uncle Abu Talib, the father of Imam Ali. He meant him, he's in hell. Subhanallah. If you want to use the word uncle and not father, the Quran clearly states Abu Lahab is in hell, right? The Quran says Abu Lahab will go to hell. They left Abu Lahab, but they stuck to Abu Talib. You see that? Subhanallah, it shows you there's a lot of politics in these hadiths. Now the important question, yes? So I have two questions. Uh, the reason for saying that Prophet's father was in hell and uh, for forging this hadith, is it to raise the status of the caliphs after the Prophet? or maybe bring down profit to their... This is what it, I'll, I'll be mentioning right now. And the second question was, uh, we said the similar tradition was narrated by Muammar, uh, but uh, it doesn't show the reply of the Prophet, what Prophet replied. No, it shows the story and what the Prophet said. The Prophet was talking to that man, but he never said, my father is in hell. He does not mention that statement that my dad and your dad are in hell. The Prophet says something else in that hadith. He gives him a different reply, which tells you there's some discrepancy here. You know, why didn't Muammar, who's more reliable and trustworthy, say this sentence? Tells you there's a discrepancy here. Now the Sunnis, they accept that other hadith of Muammar, and they also accept these. We're saying this is just a clue that shows you there's some discrepancy. Now the question is, why did they forge these hadiths about the Prophet's grandparents being kafir? Why? Several reasons. One of them, most of the companions, if not all, except Imam Ali and the Prophet, their fathers and grandfathers were what? Pagans. They were pagans. And they wanted to not give special status to Ahlul Bayt by saying their grandfathers are pure and our grandfathers were pagans, so they forged these hadith. Bani Umayyah, for example. Bani Umayyah, when they came to power, Muawiyah, Yazid and these others, they wanted to be at par with Bani Hashim and the Ahlul Bayt. You know, people would tell them, look, your ancestors, you don't have that pure ancestry. Your grandfathers were pagans. Why are you representing the Prophet, this pure family? They would say, no, the Prophet also had grandfathers who were pagans. But the most important point has to do with Imam Ali alayhi salam. Muawiyah, when he would curse Imam Ali on the pulpit, he would 
spread these false rumors and lies that Imam Ali was a mushrik. He was a pagan. His father was a pagan, Abu Talib, and his grandfathers were pagan. Their initial intent was to strike the ancestors of Imam Ali, but because Imam Ali and the Prophet have the same ancestors because they were cousins, they also struck the Prophet. So the real reason was to attack Imam Ali Because what they did, Bani Umayyah, Muawiyah, any virtue that Imam Ali had, they wanted to erase it and change it. Even his grandfather's being pure. Now when you strike the ancestors of Imam Ali, automatically you strike the ancestors of the Prophet. Because they have the same grandfathers. So there is a political motive that we see in these hadiths. Now who are the ancestors of the Prophet? So his name is Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa He's the son of Abdullah, that's his father. The son of Abdul Muttalib, that's his grandfather. The son of Shaybat al-Hamd, his great-grandfather was Shaybat al-Hamd. The son of Hashim. So when you hear Hashim, Hashimi, the Hashimite clan, they come from this grandfather of the Prophet. They were an honorable family who come from the line of Hashim. Then from Hashim you keep going up, up, up until you reach Adnan and then before that Ibrahim Up until Adnan we do have the names but then after Adnan to Ibrahim we don't have the names of the grandfathers of the Prophet. So these were the grandfathers of the Holy Prophet Who was his mother? His mother was Aminah the daughter of Wahab the son of Abd Munaf, so Amina bint Wahab bint Abd Munaf. This was the mother of the Holy Prophet So the Prophet was born in the year of the elephant, as we described in the previous course, that incident of the elephant. What year was that? In the Gregorian calendar, it's 570 AD, or in the common era, 570. He was born in that year. On which day was he born? There is a disagreement between Shias and Sunnis. Most Sunnis say he was born on the 12th day of Rabi' al-Awwal. Rabi' al-Awwal is the first month in the Islamic calendar. He was born on the 12th day of that month, on a Monday. Who says this? The majority of Sunni scholars. The majority of Shia scholars say he was born on the 17th of Rabi' al-Awwal, so five days later than what the Sunnis say, on a Friday. So there is some dis, you know, disagreements when it comes to this sects. Now you could ask, okay, you know, this is a very important event. How come there's some discrepancy here between the dates? Remember, the Arabs would not keep track of the dates. They would not even write them. You didn't have, you know, a registry, records, hospitals. So most of those people born in those eras, you did not really know the day on which they were born. Now the Prophet who later become a very important figure, yes, we do know the month, but there's some discrepancy. Sometimes even when those early writers would write, because the Arabic script was not standardized, Sometimes you would write something 
and it could be confusing. Is this one, two, three, is it seven, is it nine? So you get that confusion sometimes. But the Imams of Ahlul Bayt, peace be upon them, have clarified to the Shia that the Prophet was born on the 17th of Rabi' al-Awwal. Whether it's the 12th or the 17th, he was born in the month of Rabi' al-Awwal, year 570. In which house was he born? The Prophet was born in Mecca, in the Shi'ab of Bani Hashim. There was a neighborhood in Mecca called the Shi'ab of Bani Hashim, also known as the Shi'ab of Abu Talib, when those Muslims were persecuted and boycotted for three years, as we will see later inshallah, they sought refuge in that neighborhood, in that part of Mecca. So the Prophet was born in that neighborhood, in one of the houses there. Now Muhammad, this brother of Al-Hajjaj ibn Yusuf al-Thaqafi, have you heard about the Hajjaj? You know, the governor of Iraq, who was a big tyrant, who would mercilessly, mercilessly kill people. His brother Muhammad purchased that house in which the Prophet was born for 100,000 golden coins, dinars. Who did he purchase it from? From the descendants of Aqil. Aqil, the brother of Imam Ali ibn Abi Talib He he and his descendants, they owned that house. So he purchased it from the inheritors of Aqil for this big price. Then at the time of Harun al-Abbasi, he had a mother by the name of Al-Khayzaran. Al-Khayzaran was the mother of Harun. Harun was the Abbasid ruler at the time of, uh, you know, Al-Imam Al-Kadhim So we're talking about nearly two centuries after the Prophet, she turned this house into a mosque where many people would come, they would visit the house, seek the blessings from this house, they would pray there, it was a mosque. And it continued that way throughout history until what? Until the Wahhabis came, they demolished the house and they destroyed the house. So today, when you go to Mecca, you will no longer see that house, it's raised down. Yes, recently they've destroyed the house. The very house that the messenger of God is born. Imagine, imagine if Jesus we knew exactly where his house was. You think the Christians would have demolished his house? Or they would do pilgrimage to his house? This is the messenger of God. But look at these Wahhabis, they raised down his house, yes. Was that house right next to the Kaaba? And it's not right next to the Kaaba. There is distance between it and the Kaaba, no. There is some distance, it's in Mecca, it's not too far from the Kaaba, but it's not right by the Kaaba, there is some distance. So they raised down the house unfortunately, and we no longer have the honor to go and visit the house of the Prophet Yes, they have this complex and it's close to the bathrooms, yeah. They have no respect for the Prophet of Islam. So the Prophet is born according to our Sources on the 17th of Rabi' al-Awwal on a Friday. The seventh day approached. On the seventh day, Abdul Muttalib, who was the grandfather of the Prophet, he slaughters a sheep and he gives a feast and he invites people, the poor, his relatives, they come and he feeds them in honor 
of this baby. And that's why in the religion of Islam it's mustahab. On the seventh day to sacrifice a sheep when you have a newborn and then from that sheep you know uh, make a delicious meal and invite your friends and family and some poor people to come and eat. Is that aqiqah? That's the aqiqah, yes. We call that aqiqah. So Abdul Muttalib did that for the Prophet. And then at that ceremony, at that feast, Abdul Muttalib gave the Prophet his name. He named him Muhammad. On the seventh day he gave him this wonderful name. What does this name mean in Arabic? It comes from the word, root word hamd, praise. The one, and he said, the most praised. Abdul Muttalib, when he gave him that name, he says, he is the most praised in the heavens and on the earth. He gave him that beautiful name. His mother, Amina, she named him Ahmed. That's why you have two names for the Prophet. One is Muhammad, one is Ahmed. It comes from the same root word, pretty much the same meaning. So his mother Amina gave him the name Ahmed. She would call him Ahmed. You know some mothers sometimes they have their own special name that they give to their uh, children. And Abdul Muttalib named him Muhammad. His official name was Muhammad, but his mother sometimes would call him Ahmed. Now this name of Muhammad, it was a very rare name among the Arabs. Some historians say only 16 people before the Prophet were given this name. So this name did exist, but it was very, very rare. It was a rare name. Abdul Muttalib was inspired by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give him that name. The Prophet is born. His mother Amina is breastfeeding him. However, due to a number of circumstances, and this was common at the time, she could not continue breastfeeding him. So what happens is that there is a woman by the name of Halima al-Sa'diya. She comes from the tribe of Bani Sa'd. They lived in an area not too far from Mecca in the deserts. They were Bedouins. She along with her friends, she comes and visits Mecca in search of a baby to breastfeed. Because this was common at the time, many women, one of the ways in which they would make a living, if she, had, if she was pregnant and she had a child, and she could breastfeed another child, she had you know, that extra milk to breastfeed another child, she would come to the city, adopt a child, breastfeed that child and in return get a compensation for that. So they would be paid by the family of that child to breastfeed. So Halima Sa'diyya comes when the Prophet is born, you know, not too long after the Prophet is born. Our sources are not that clear, some say a week after his, he was born, some say several months after he was born. But when he was a newborn infant, she comes looking for a baby, she, comes, she stumbles on this family. She comes across the family of the Prophet. Now, Abdul Muttalib and the mother of the Prophet Amina, it seems from our sources they were inspired that when this woman by the name of Halima comes from the tribe of Bani Sa'd, then she is the appropriate woman to have the Prophet grow, grow up in her arms and breastfeed from her. So Halima Sa'diya, she comes, she makes an agreement, Abdul Muttalib offers to her. He tells her, would you like to breastfeed my grandson. 
in, uh, you know, in return for a wage, she accepts, so she takes the Prophet. Now there is a hadith that is found in Sunni sources that says before Halim al-Sa'diyya took the Prophet to breastfeed him, there was another woman who breastfed him. So initially for a few days, three, four days, his mother breastfed him. Then because she was so weak, she could not breastfeed him, she did not have enough milk. There was a woman by the name of Thuwaybah, or Thawbiyah, sorry. Her name was Thawbiyah. Thawbiyah was a slave, a female slave owned by Abu Lahab. Abu Lahab is who? The uncle of the Prophet. He owned Thawbiyah. Thawbiyah came, she breastfed the Prophet for a number of days before Halima came. And some sources indicate that Thawbiyah, she went to Abu Lahab, her master, she gave him the news that you now have a new nephew. His name is Muhammad and he is born. He got happy, Abu Lahab, according to this tradition, and he set her free. Now, some of our scholars in examining this hadith, they have an issue with it. They say that's not true. This probably did not happen. First of all, Abu Lahab did not set her free. We know that Thawbiyah, she lived until the time of Islam, until 50 years later, and it was around the time of Hijrah that she was released and she became free. And we don't even know if she really became Muslim or not. There are no authentic narrations that tell us she was a believer in God. And our scholars believe that if Allah wants His Prophet to be breastfed by a woman, she has to be a woman of faith, not a woman who would worship the idols. Because that has an impact, you know, what you feed the baby, it has a big impact. Halima was a faithful woman in God, she did not worship the idols. So some scholars have an issue with this hadith, but Sunni scholars and some Shia scholars do accept that. That the mother of the Prophet, Amina, she breastfed him for a number of days, then Thawbiya breastfed him for a number of days, then Halima Sa'diya came and she took care of the Prophet. Is it on the basis of this tradition that uh, we get a tradition saying that Abu Lahab is not uh, punished in the hell? For there is a Sunni, yes, there is a hadith in Sunni books that say because when he was informed that the Prophet was born, he got happy and he set her free, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, while he's in hell, on some days for instance or sometime, he will remove the punishment because Abu Lahab became happy for the Prophet. There is a hadith, like I said it's in Sunni sources, it's not in our sources, so we really don't know the authenticity of it. We cannot confirm the authenticity of that hadith. Does Allah, does Allah really work like that? Well, they're saying in honor of the Prophet, the Sunnis would say, just to honor the Prophet. At the end of the day, even though he was a disbeliever, but because he became happy for a Prophet of God, and he did a good deed by setting her free, then Allah will reduce the punishment. So that's their philosophy. And the example they give for this hadith is of Zulaikha, that she had the love of Prophet, on just by mentioning this name, she got this love and that is why she was... Yeah, but the difference between that and Zulaikha is that Zulaikha's love for the Prophet guided her to believe in God and the Prophet, so she repented. Abu Lahab did not repent.
He died as a disbeliever and the Quran is clear that he went to hell. Sayasla naran He will go to hell. Is this Muslims hadith? So this hadith is found in Sunni sources. It's not in our sources about Thawbiyah. In Muslim or Bukhari? And in many Sunni sources. You will find them in many Sunni sources. Not just one particular source. So Halima, she comes and she takes care of the Holy Prophet The life of Halima changes when she adopts this new baby. And when I, when I say adopt, meaning she took care of this baby. The blessings of God increased on her. The blessings of Allah multiplied. Her family became richer. The barakah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was experienced by her and her family members. How long did she take care of him? Five years. For about five years, she took care of him. Now the breastfeeding is only two years. After she breastfed him for two years, she took him back to Mecca. Because they had an agreement that you would breastfeed this child for two years. When she took him back to Mecca, she was so attached to the baby, she begged Amina, the mother of the Prophet, please let me keep him. I want to raise him. I want to keep him. But Amina is the mother of the Prophet. She also wants him. But the problem is there was an outbreak of cholera in Mecca. And babies were being, you know, taken by this disease and they were dying. So Amina feared for the life of this newborn. Halima, who was a good woman, was begging her, so she accepted. She said, okay, you can keep him for some more time until we're done with this disease. Yes? So this was done like purposely though, so that he wouldn't be raised in that like environment with the diseases and the, and the way that the people acted. To keep him in a more pure environment. Now, that's a good point. Why in that time, why was it customary for some Meccan prominent families to have their children uh, be taken by a woman who breastfeeds him in the desert? Why? For two reasons. One, health reasons. When you're in an open desert, it's a healthier lifestyle, fresher air, less diseases, less bacteria. In the city, there's more diseases. Number two, the, another reason had to do with eloquence. When you're in the desert only amongst Arabs, they speak perfect Arabic. So the child grows up to speak perfect Arabic. Whereas in Mecca, you had foreigners who would be there, some of them would settle there, and sometimes some things would be added to the Arabic language. So a child growing up in Mecca would not be as eloquent as a child growing up in a tribe which is kind of isolated from the big city. So that was another reason why the Meccans would do that. So it was very common. Don't be surprised, you know, how could the mother of the Prophet have him leave the city of Mecca? No, this was actually a very common practice. So she takes him for five years. Now there's another instant where she brings him to Mecca. So twice during those five years she brings him to Mecca. One is at the end of the two years. One later on, a group of Ethiopian Christian scholars from Ethiopia, they're passing by, they come across the village of Halima Sa'diya and the tribe of Bani Sa'd. They see this young child, maybe he was four or five at the time, they see the signs of prophethood on him, 
on his shoulder, on his face. They had read in their Bible that the last prophet who will emerge from Arabia has these signs. So when they see these signs, they wanted to take him to Ethiopia to raise him there so that the final prophet will be from their own tribe, from their own city. Halima got scared that maybe they would kidnap him, so she quickly came to Mecca for some time until they left. And that's the second time that he saw his mother. Now there's a very disturbing story that Sunni sources narrate when it comes to the Prophet in the tribe of Bani Sa'd with Halima. So the Prophet was in that village growing up those five years. There are hadiths in Bukhari, in Muslim, and many Sunni sources that say one day the Prophet was playing with the kids when suddenly Jibra'il comes, he holds the Prophet, he splits his chest open like a surgical operation, he tears, it up, he tears his chest, he cuts his test, chest, he takes out the heart of the Prophet, there was a clot on the heart of the Prophet, a ghudda, what do you call a ghudda? A lymph node, a type of clot on the heart of the Prophet. He takes that ghudda, he cuts that clot, then he takes the heart of the Prophet, he washes it with zamzam water in a golden plate container, and then he puts the heart back, then he stitches his chest and he goes back playing. But now the Prophet is traumatized, his face is yellow. The kids run to Halima and they tell her, Muhammad's dead, your child is dead. So she rushes and she sees these marks on his chest, but he was okay. Who narrates this? Bukhari, Muslim, many of these sources. What was that clot? The hadith in Bukhari and Muslim says that clot was a window for the shaitan, the devil, to go into the heart of the Prophet. The lot of the shaitan, hadl shaitan as the hadith says. So Jibra'il wanted to save the Prophet from the devil, from Satan, so he came and he cut that clot and that's how he saved the Prophet from the impact of the shaitan. So before this clot, shaitan would come in and out and enter the Prophet's heart as he wished. Now Bukhari, Muslim and these other sources say this happened four or five times in the Prophet's life. Later on when he grew up this happened, again Jibra'il would come, again he would do this surgical operation. Subhanallah, no other messenger of God had to go through this. Except the poor Prophet, he has to have this clot in his heart and it's the window for the shaitan and Jibra'il has to traumatize him like that by opening his chest and cutting up his heart and then putting it back. I won't pass the judgment, you pass the judgment. Whether you accept such myths or not. It's in the main Sunni sources, so yes. Most Shia scholars, the majority of Shia scholars reject this story and they say this is a fabrication by some people who forged these hadiths, yes. Don't they also say that the other prophets had it, except for Nabi Isa? Yes, they also do mention that Isa salam was so pure, he did not have that. But with other prophets, there was no surgical operation. 
Jibra'il didn't come and remove it for them. He only removed it from the Prophet. And yes, they do mention that Jesus was so pure he did not have that clot on his heart. Yes, they do mention that in the hadith. Yes. Why, why are Bukhari and Muslim given such a high status? Who, 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 on whose authority? So basically, <laughs> see, after the Prophet, there was an era of, of about a hundred years where there was a ban on recording the hadith. Those who came to power, who ruled in the name of the Prophet, um, unjustly, they banned the people from writing the correct hadith. So you had a century of this gap. So in that century, some people found it a business to come and just make up stories about earlier prophets, about this prophet, and then they would narrate this, and then the Muslims, they did not have access to the correct hadiths. The family of the prophet were persecuted, Imam Ali, Imam Al-Hassan and Hussein. And so this found its way into the teachings that Muslims were learning. Then the Imams of Ahlul Bayt, Al-Imam Al-Sadiq especially, Al-Imam Al-Baqir, when they had some freedom, they described to their followers that this is false, this never happened, these are just forgeries. These were absolute forgeries. Yes, because later the states that would come, the governments that would come, they would authorize them to write these books and then later they would spread these books. When you have a state and you've got money and you've got a media machine mm -hmm. and you've got scribes who are working for you, you can make any school of thought. How long after Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon his death, were, were, were they born? How, how about Bukhari and Muslim? Yeah, about two to three centuries after the Prophet. So you see, they came way after the Prophet. So, yeah, so I mean, who, I mean, like with the, the Ethnic Bay, we, we have specific dates, you know, who followed who? See, these books were authored by scholars, Sunni scholars. Mm -hmm. Then what helped them is the state. The state adopted their books. So the rulers at that time? The rulers at the time, they took these teachings and these books, they spread them and propagated them and that's how they spread. So they gave them the authority. They had the people who had the most money were the ones who backed Muslim and Bukhari and they, and they Yes, them. yes. But that's why they're so... Even till now yes. though, I mean like even doing research, I mean for myself, I mean you have to sift and sift and sift and sift. And even some uh, Shia sites like you gave me um, alislam.org, even those are very incorrect. Yes. So I mean if we have the, the correct um, hadith and we have the correct you know, the correct path and we have all this information. Why are we not correcting that? Like if you go on you, any any um, media, you go to the website, you go the to... They have the wealth. Right, but so do we. I can open this up right now. No, 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 no. Yeah. See, scholars in our recent times, they have been doing that. In the past, because if you open they didn't have the resources to do that. But today, with our modern technology, we are doing that. The book that I mentioned in the first course, As-Sahih Min Seerat Al-Nabi, the 35 volume book, right? That does a lot of this analysis. And he will tell you what he thinks is right or wrong based on evidence and proof. Plus they're the majority, like I mean... And remember, they're the majority, they have the resources. Like, okay, the, yeah. the majority, but if you open YouTube right now, if, say I want to look at the biography of the Prophet. 
I have to put in specific scholars to give that information. Yeah. If you yes. open, if you just put this in, you're going to get bombarded with um, so many Sunni, and not, sometimes it's not even Sunni, it's just ignorant people making videos. Yes, exactly. The, the, the Christians chime in and this people, and people say like, I was ex-Muslim, and you have all, so where are we? Do you know what I mean? As a Shia, where are we as a... As a so we as a Shia, we, when it comes to these facts, mm -hmm. as I mentioned, the biography of the Prophet, there has been a lot of fabrications in the biography. So we have to take these stories and analyze them and compare them to the character of the Prophet and the Qur'an. Anything that contra contradicts that, there's a red flag on it automatically. There's a question mark on it. So when the Qur'an says the Prophet is pure and anything that he says is revelation and he has the best character and you find such praise, will you accept that God will allow this clot? I, I, just a normal individual, I don't have that clot, okay? The Prophet is going to have it, it just doesn't make sense. And number two, is guidance and evil has to do with physical clots? If the shaitan is whispering to somebody, you cut his body part, you do a surgical operation, since when does a surgical operation make you good or bad? Save you or not save your religion? It's nonsense. It's nonsense when you look at it. So these were fabrications, unfortunately, that we find in the biography of the Holy Prophet so the, the Qur'an is very clear that the true servants of God, the shaitan has no authority. Allah clearly tells the devil, my true servants, you have no access to them. But haram, the Rasul, the shaitan did have access to him. But Jibra'il had to do these surgical operations four or five times to save the Prophet. So Sayyid, basically what you're saying is that he's not like pure, he's not like... Yes, they don't fully believe in his full infallibility and full purity. They do believe he was pure, but not as pure as we, the followers of Ahlul Bayt, say. But then, how does that make sense if he's like a prophet? That's not gonna make sense. Why would God choose a prophet? Exactly. Why would God choose a boy like that who has this? I mean, if you read like page by page, that page contradicted that page, exactly. There are contradictions. There are many contradictions in these books. So this is the life of the Prophet, five years with Halim al-Sa'diyyah. Inshallah on Saturday in the following course, we will uh, quickly go through his parents. Abdullah, in what circumstances did he pass away? And the mother of the Prophet Then we'll continue into the biography of the Prophet.